Hello everybody and welcome to Brumvagoon. You will not get there on a road bike or better in this way you need a gravel bike to get there and the gravel bike that I'm talking about is the open app that now is sitting in my studio room and that I already tested a couple of times and finally here is completely assembled and I'm ready to go for a lot of adventure. We did so thanks a lot to Open for giving me the opportunity of riding this amazing thing and Welcome back also to Stefano into winter. So the best part of winter, in my opinion, is getting muddy on an open app. But I still prefer summer, people. Sorry for that. I really, really prefer summer. And that's probably because I'm just back from my vacation in Australia, where it was summer, weather was amazing, and all the world was smiling at me because of the warm weather. I loved it. Nothing else to say. I really, really, really loved that weather over there and I spent a lot of time. But I'm back in Zurich, I'm back in winter and I'm back on producing this amazing podcast together with you. So the two best things of Zurich in this moment are my brand new open app that I assembled together with my friend Andrea, who provided me with some pieces and a lot of patience to put all the stuff together. And the broom wagon is back! And nothing else to say that if you want to continue listening to this voice and to this thing, and you want to support me on that, just please be sure to go on Apple Podcasts if you are listening into that uh, with your device and subscribe, review, give me five stars, three stars, whatever, and put a comment on that. It's pretty important. I would love actually to climb a bit more the charts of Apple Podcasts. I was in silence into my uh, social media, so nothing else to say that if you want to follow me, now I'm back, is on instagram.com slash and probably I need to introduce the guest of my podcast for today. And I'm talking about Samuel Thompson, who won a bunch of unsupported race in his life. Uh, ultra, endurance, whatever, you know what I mean, right? And this year he took part on the first brand new, first edition of the Trans Pyrenees. And he arrived second. But the story behind it is even more beautiful. So I would like to listen to that and I will talk to you at the end of this episode. Bye! Hello everybody! This is an amazing story because I'm actually interviewing today somebody who says that he's a fan of my podcast. Samuel. Samuel Thompson. Hi Samuel, how are you doing? Hi, very well, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. Tell me more about this kind of, uh, I don't know, preference that you have for my podcast. Do you like it? Yeah, I listen to a lot of, um, well, a lot of podcasts which are uh, which is cycling related and adventure cycling related. Well, there's not a huge amount, not a huge amount out there. Um, and um, I think I, I came across yours by um, by I think it was originally um, Camille McMillan's interview back um, earlier on this year. And he's someone I come across from following things like the Transcontinental Race. And then from there, I'd seen that you'd interviewed other people around this area like Anna Heslock and um, yeah that sort of got me interested and then from subscribing to then hearing these stories from other people who um, 
some people who you, you may not you may not hear their stories um, through through more conventional types of media. So it's um, yeah, it's been it's uh, been interesting hearing these and um, hearing more detail behind people's stories and what motivates them to do these things as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for that. I really, really appreciate it. But we are not talking today to talk about me and my podcast. I hope that everybody out there is listening already to the broom wagon. But, okay, let's start from that, Samuel, because, yeah, we have an elephant in the room. And I think that I got to know you because of this story. And uh, I think that also other people know you because of this story. And the story happened in the last Trans-Pyrenees. Let's talk about the story and then we are going to move forward. We need to make a bit more of space in this room. Okay, um, well, I'm not sure how far back in the in the actual day to go, but um, it all happened at the end of the Trans Pyrenees race, which um, which if anyone if anyone isn't familiar with, it's um, it's roughly sixteen hundred kilometers, um, started in Biarritz. Um, there it was a mix of mandatory parkour control points and self-navigated bits of the routes which took you from from Biarritz to the other side of the Pyrenees the mandatory bits basically kept you in the kept you in the high mountains um, and then turned around and came back um, and most of the uh, most of the return route was um, based on the raid Pyrenees, Pyrenees routes which um, was I think it was about I think it's just over 500, 500 kilometers with 13,000 meters of climbing going over most of the well-known um, well-known passes on the French side um, including the Tourmalet, the Parasaurs, the Obisque. So the last the last stretch I did I, um, I started um, on the morning of Monday with um, what, I, what I calculated about 510 kilometers to go which included basically the entire of this of this raid Pyrenees route and um, so mm-hmm. it's going to be uh, something like 12 13,000 meters of climbing um, and in my head there I uh, it was yeah it was my it was my goal to do this in one go to to do this bit to do this right straight through the night and to do this bit without sleep and I thought I uh, I thought even with all the climbing I should be getting there mid-morning sort okay. of time the next day how um, many hours did you calculate on that um 30 i think yeah i think well it took the it took 30 hours ah, okay i may i maybe thought it might have been a bit quicker okay but, um, but it was it was a real slog that bit because it was it was climbing all day and it wasn't well the climbing you expect to be slow but it's uh most of the descents were tricky technical descents where you weren't you weren't getting back the speed which you were which you were losing from going down sorry from from going um, from slogging your way up these hills and then a lot of them i had to take at night as well um so that really that was um really takes away from your speed too i was more focused on executing my own performance than checking what other people do and the influence I, I I thought it would have a negative influence on me knowing if someone was really close to me, even if, mm. even if even if they were just behind or just in front, because I was more concerned about 
about uh, before my own race than having to having that stress of knowing what other people were doing around me. Um, but looking back at, um, I had I moved into first place over the last night while Thomas, the eventual winner, was was sleeping. Um, so I think I maybe had an hour or two lead um, during the early hours in the morning. Um, I of course didn't notice at the time, and I knew I was. I knew I was around, I knew I was probably in contention because I'd arrived at checkpoints two and three in second place. Okay. And since checkpoint three, I hadn't, apart from seeing people come in the other way because there was a bit of a an out and back section, I hadn't seen anyone else on the road. So I knew, I knew it was in contention, but I couldn't, I didn't know whether I was first, second or third. So there was, there was a, there were sort of those thoughts going around my mind. Maybe I am first. Like, how would I react? And but then um, it was around seven o'clock in the morning. The sun was just coming up, and um, um, on the road coming through, coming through the Basque Country, going up um, one of this one of the smaller hills after after some of these big coals that had been going over. Um, Thomas came flying past me on the road. Um, said he, he was going he was going twice my speed um he said he said something very brief something along the lines of um yeah I'd, li- I'd like to stop and talk but we're so we're so close and um he went straight past me well, I, I, I think it took me a while to sort of to process this, this was another it was another rider because i hadn't seen anyone else in, in a couple of days at that point and um but the speed he went flying past um i knew well i knew then that i wasn't in first i I sort of had a had an inkling to check the tracker, but I I thought, what well, what good's that going to do? It's I, all I can do is just keep moving, mm-hmm. and um, so um, that was. It turns out that was about with about hundred kilometres to go. Um, so from that, from it was it was a bit it was a bit disheartening to know for sure that I wasn't in first. At least that sort of. That element of doubt was that was taken away. I'd sort of realised that I'd I'd ridden through that last night. I couldn't. <laughs> I was moving at speed where um, I, could, I, I I couldn't really move any faster. I was I was making progress, but not at the speed that not at the speed that Thomas was. So I resigned myself to just keeping moving. Um, who knows what can happen in these in these sort of events? Uh, yeah. It's often the person that keeps moving for the longest periods of time that that does the best. So um, I thought that's that's all I could do. Um, and um, this um, this part of this part of the course was still on the Mantry Parkour um, on the Rage Pyrenee route. Um, and this uh, this part finished with about uh, there's about and then at, at, from the end of the Mantry Parkour we had about um, there's about 25 to 30 kilometers to to reach Biarritz mm-hmm. and at this stage um I I in my planning I I had thought that there was a free route to go back to the uh to go back to the finish at Biarritz I arrived well I got to got to with about within about 500 meters of the finish and I thought I didn't want to I didn't want to get to the finish without knowing exactly where I was so I checked the track and then I'd seen Thomas had arrived I think it was about 15 minutes earlier mm-hmm. and that was that was why I was, I was a bit well if anything I was a bit surprised that 
Thomas wasn't even further ahead at the speed he was going, but turns out he had fallen off during the night, and I think he'd sprained, uh, sprained his wrist or his shoulder wow. in the end. So he was sort of hobbling into the finish as well. Um, and so I so I got into the finish um, 15 minutes behind me. There was... There's quite a few people there. It was really, it was a really nice, really nice reception. And I went up, um, went up to see Thomas and congratulate him. And then once, I think I've had this a couple of times after these events. It's your body seems to you. You can ride. You, I, I'd ridden thirty hours within. I think it was thirty hours moving within about thirty-three hours. Um, total time and i felt like one when you're when you're still moving it's fine but the second the second you stop and your mind shuts off it seems like uh, your joints seem to swell up your body you're you mentally shut down and so i'd i remember i remember there was there was some stairs within Capravello, the shop which hosted the, hosted the finish. Uh, yeah. I remember hobbling up these stairs and sitting and sort of lowering myself down very gently to sit upstairs. And I could feel my knees starting to swell, my ankles starting to swell, and it was, it was, it was even, it was even quite difficult to sort of lower myself to to sit down. Um, and so I, I was in. I think I was. I think I was in at the finish for the best part of an hour. Um, they offered they offered us a beer to drink, so I drank that, and I think that went straight to my head. Um, and then and then I went back upstairs, um, and James, the photographer, was taking some portrait photos then. And it was at that point which which Anna came over to me. She said um, she said to me, Sam, you've uh, you haven't ridden the the last parkour. Um, and at that point. Um, well, I I said I didn't I didn't realise there was a there was a mandatory parkour. Um, it turned out that um, there was a mandatory part of the route, which we had ridden on the way out from the start, which we were which we had to ride the same route back in at the finish. It was about twenty kilometres leading out of Biarritz, um, which finished quite close to where the end of the the Raid Pyrenees parkour finished. So we were supposed to do a, a short bit between those two parkour to um, uh, to link up to link up that part. Um, I hadn't realised this. Um, I knew it was I knew it was, a, it was an error on my part. It's um, it's generally not a sort of mistake I make. I'm quite meticulous in going through the details of route planning, logistics, and so on. Um, so the second well. The second Anna told me this, that sort of, yeah, my heart sunk. I sort of, but I put so much into it to get to this point that um, uh, that I, I I wanted to be officially recognised as, as finishing. I didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the whole the whole point for me to to do these sort of things is to is to do the route which is set out. Do do the mandatory do the mandatory route. So I could I could say I'd ridden sixteen hundred kilometers across the Pyrenees and back, but I couldn't have said I'd completed the, yeah. the Trans Pyrenees race. Um so Anna said you got um uh, she said first thing she said was um, you can either go out and and ride the ride the parkour again and my immediate reaction to that after 
after sitting down for a while and feeling like I was, I said, I think I said out loud, I, I can't, I can't go out, I can't, I, I can't do that. I think it was just that, that thought of after sitting down for that time, getting back on the bike, even doing um, what was, yeah, what I thought was 20 kilometres each way was, uh, it, yeah, just didn't feel like an option. Then the next, but then she said to the, I thought the next thing she said was, that will give you a time penalty or something like that. Um, but she said, if not, then we won't be able to give you a, um, a spot on a spot on GC. You might be recognised as a finisher, but you wouldn't be um, you wouldn't be on the sort of uh, on the official on the official GC list. And yeah, that's where that's when that's when I, I realised I yeah I'd put so much so much to get that far. That I, yeah, I just couldn't I just couldn't leave it. That I couldn't. I couldn't live myself if, well, maybe that's a bit extreme, but <laughs> I just imagined if I if I'd gone back to my hotel later and was sitting there and thinking, there, why didn't why didn't I do that? Why didn't I just go out and it's yeah I'd just ridden five hundred k nonstop? What's another forty k on top of that? Um, and it, it it took me it took me no time to realise I. Yeah, it was it was twenty kilometers out and back, and it was. I was talking. I was saying about mentally shutting down. I think I mentally turned on again straight away because after lowering myself down to to sit down, my knees aching. I I jumped straight up again, and um, and from that point, I sort of. Uh, but as soon as I as soon as I got back on the bike, it felt like I hadn't stopped. Yeah. Um, and it was. Yeah, it was just it was. I think all the other circumstances um, seemed to help as well because it was it was mid afternoon. It was mm. twenty plus degrees sunny. It was it wasn't after after doing that ten thousand plus meters of climbing previously. This was just over a couple of rolling hills to get out and get back again. And as I was riding out, I was thinking, this is. I'm effectively on holiday here, riding through the Basque country, uh, doing a couple of hours. It was it was actually quite a pleasant ride. I think someone asked me afterwards whether I sort of whether I was casting in myself over making that mistake, but I didn't really didn't really have the energy to. I didn't feel like it would it would be productive to do that. Um, I had to accept responsibility for for making that error. It's all part of part of these events route planning and getting logistics right and it was it was a narrow I'd made um, so yeah I would say that then so how long did it take actually to do this 40 k's 22 hours yeah it was it was another yeah it was another uh, two hours um, and it was well I had I had plenty of time still to come in second because I think the next person was I think they I think I worked out there about 12 hours on the road behind so mm. I think so the you got... time I was still at still had about 10 hours in the next person and uh i saw i think it was one on one of the facebook groups someone had commented that i would have had time to to have a sleep and then gone back and, do, and done it but i couldn't I, I when you when you when i had that option it was either do it now or or never do it because yeah. i think someone else had made the same same mistake um who had come in a bit later and they decided not to do it and i heard I heard the next day that they had come to the finish and said that they regretted not doing it. Um, I think maybe if it was really bad weather, it was middle of the night, 
if I was in a worse state, it would have been a different option, a different, um, a different consideration to make. But um, I think I was fortunate that it was those conditions, and it was just that it was just whether I could sort of physically, mentally get myself back into the get back into the frame of mind to um, yeah to get out there. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, as you are describing it, so these episodes and everything seems like the most difficult part of that was actually standing up, jumping back on the bicycle and start doing. Once that you were on the bicycle, everything came natural. Yeah, because uh, for, for the past four and a half days, that's, uh, that's what I'd got used to. It was, uh, you're spending most of the time sitting on your bike pedaling. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's amazing how that sort of, how, that, how your mind switches off as, as soon as you finish. And it was... Yeah, it was it, it. That that was why when I was first told I couldn't contemplate getting back on because I know how I felt the days after doing these rides previously. Um, but I suppose I was fortunate that it was yeah, that it was that soon after. But even having that hour, even having an hour off, like it, it doesn't feel the same as having a having a sleep break during the race itself. Mm. There's something totally diff- different about that finish, uh, that feeling of finishing. Because um, getting up from sleeping um, in the middle of a race, you 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 still got that, that adrenaline going. You're you're excited. Well, maybe excited. Maybe uh, you're anticipating get, getting back on the move again. But when you think you've finished, you've you're not preparing yourself to to get going again. You're yeah. It's uh, <laughs> It was yeah, it was a bit. I'm sort of thinking back, and I can't can't really remember what happened in that sort of 45 minutes hour yeah. uh, hour time in uh, from uh, from from finishing the ride and having to go back again. And um, I don't I don't think I I still I still felt well not fresh, but I didn't come into the fi- I didn't come into the finish on my last legs. I I sort of reached a state where. I was. I had one speed to move at, and I was keeping myself moving at that speed. So, um, so yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I think that sort of. Yeah, that sort of. That psychological side is interesting looking back on. Yes. No. 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 It's. It's actually great. It's the first time that I'm talking with somebody. Somebody that has this experience, something like arriving at the finish line and saying, "Okay." Because usually these things happen, this kind of thing happens, especially when you're uh, riding in fixed parkour and everything like this, it happens from time to time that people, for example, arrive as the first as CP1, CP2, and then they are missing a piece or they need to go back to the city, fix the bicycle and come back and start. These things happen. But I think that this is the first time that I heard, that's why I was talking about elephant in the room. This thing never, I never heard about people arriving at the finish line and starting again and making the last part and then arriving. And this is actually exactly the, the psychological thing that makes me curious because, as I was saying, it seems like at this point it's just just getting your stuff back together and uh, saying, okay, if we want to finish this, you want to finish it in a proper way, you need to jump back on the bicycle and do the other 40 kilometers. But this is the toughest part. Because then you are used, as you were saying, you are used to ride on the bike, the ride the bicycle. You were doing it for the last four or five days, 
So, you know, there's nothing really impossible to do, but just putting all the effort, all the strength that you have in your body back on the bicycle and do it again, that's the difficult part. Yeah, it's often, uh, you can compare it to, well, to any time, any time you get out on a bike, you, uh, well, it's often said with, well, well, with most forms of exercise that you don't, you, you never regret having done it. But sometimes the toughest thing is starting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can I can see that, that it exactly relates to this. I didn't. It's uh, it's maybe there would have been yeah it would have been a lot of regret if I hadn't if I hadn't done this. Uh, but um, but it was yeah it was those first few pedal strokes sort of um, yeah it was uh, but but then again I. I had to I had to tell myself that I had the time to do it. There was no there was no rush. If I if I, if I had to put it stick it in my smallest gear to get up even the slightest hill, then I could do that because I had the time. So I was in that. I was fortunate that I'd put myself in that position in that way. Um, that there was, yeah, because. Can imagine if there was if the next person was a couple of hours behind and I had to do that and I had to do 25k an hour out and back to to get to finish ahead of them that would have maybe would have put, put a bit more pressure on me but I tried to I tried to take that pressure off myself and just tell myself to ride what felt what felt natural and um and yeah it's it yeah that that made it yeah uh, that made the ride more more pleasant and then. I think I was. I think I was quite sure when I got in the next time that I'd done it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's fine, anyways. Just still, maybe we can stick for another couple of minutes on the Trans Pyrenees itself. Then we're gonna go broader around. It was the first edition, but it was not your first race of this kind. How and why, in your opinion, this race was special? How did you like the most, and which were the moments that you will remember? And I don't know if you will think about it. You will, would you do it again? Or you're gonna find another challenge. Um, I'm off to there's there's a lot of events and races I've done which, after doing, I think that's uh, that's it. I uh, there's not that same enticement to go back to them. Whether it's whether it's because I feel like I've I feel like I've uh, seen that place and it well partly because there's so much there's so much out there to see, so many new places to go to go and visit and ride through um but it um it sort of took you to places within the pyrenees which you you wouldn't it, well you wouldn't necessarily pick out yourself um the the mandatory parts were uh yeah the road the road surface is very very variable um I think especially on Spanish side as well, because the, the French side, all, all the coals, all the, which you see come up in the Tour de France year after year, mm-hmm. um, it was it felt like being in a different world on that on that south side. Especially the the first the first morning we had was it was it was drizzly. It was uh, it was yeah it was a bit uh, <laughs> the weather wasn't great on the French side, and then we crested over. Um, over the first cold to get to the Spanish side, and then suddenly it was 25 degrees. The sun was out. It was baking hot. It was. I think that was that was one of the one of the main challenges with this 
with this race at this time of year was the the constantly changing conditions. Um, I think I was I was very fortunate in not coming across some of the worst conditions. I think it had, I think there had been some snow in a few weeks beforehand in the um, in some of the higher parts of the Pyrenees. So I was a bit a bit concerned about that beforehand. Um, and even even without that, it was it was chilly at nights. It wasn't it wasn't freezing, but it was cold enough to uh, to have most most of your layers on. And fortunately, it was it was sunny most of the days. Um, but at this time of year, the sun takes a long time to come up, and especially when when you're in the mountains, you don't necessarily see the sun till ten eleven o'clock in the morning. But then as soon as the sun hit. It was suddenly baking hot, especially when you were when you were going up two-hour climbs. So I'd go from having leg warmers, long sleeves, to suddenly taking everything off for that middle part of the day, uh, and then sweating away going up and down. Well, going up the hills, usually having to put on extra layers for the descent, and then as soon as the sun would crest over the other side and go behind the hills, the other side it would be freezing cold again. But yeah, this was not the first and as well as the only event that you have done this year i don't know let me check here i have my notes yeah you have been winning the bikepacking around norway it was something like i don't know july am i wrong how was was, that one it was july in in norway though uh, Ah. which (laughs) which um well i think we had we had a a lot of conditions in in a way that i think the the weather conditions were tougher in Norway than they were in the Pyrenees. Um, the sun, maybe. No, but uh, yeah, actually, you've made the all round of Norway. So probably in July, you got a lot of sun, of light, let's say. Yeah, and in light, it was um, it was really good. It started, we started in Oslo, um, uh, did a circuit round, went south a bit, um, then across to Bergen, and then as far north as Trondheim, and back down to Norway. So it's a circuit of the sort of the, the fat bit of Norway at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that time of year it was amazing. The uh, the sun the sun did set, but it was sort of just below the horizon. So you get to sort of past just a bit past midnight, and you could sort of it was still it was still probably just about light enough to see without lights. Um, and then the sun would sort of hover under the horizon for that three hours and then come up, which was, it made riding through the night easier in some ways, but I found, right, generally riding through the night, I find that the first couple of hours are fine, and then you get to, you get to that sort of two o'clock, three o'clock time where you're starting to starting to expect you might see you might see a bit of sun on the horizon and then the sun the sun coming up later gives you that gives you that mental boost to that it's a new day and the the world world will be waking up soon but when you're when the sun doesn't really set and it's it feels like middle of the day at three in the morning that those hours that sort of three till eight o'clock can feel, feel very long because you're mm. you've had that mental boost that the sun's come up and it's it's a brand new day but then it, you're waiting for the world to respond. You're you're still riding across empty roads with, well, it was very remote anyway in lots of parts of Norway, and it would. It, I think I remember. I think I think the toughest part of um, 
of well the first the first night I rode through was when I got to about six in the morning and was um it and there's no shops open you can't sort of you can't go somewhere to get a coffee you've it's yeah it was it was it was tough it was it was tough in that way but it was it was still it was a pleasant experience being able to ride through the night when it's uh when it wasn't as many hours of darkness whereas in the pyrenees we had 12 12 odd hours yeah. of darkness the sun wasn't coming up to eight o'clock so it's you know it was, it was different in that way um but the yeah the weather conditions in Norway in July I think I think even some of the locals are saying that it was it was especially bad we had well we left left Oslo in 25 degrees plus in shorts and short sleeves it was really nice for the first night and then uh, the second or third day started raining and didn't really stop for the next five days on and off Oof. it was um, it was. <laughs> It was there was yeah there was a couple of couple of pretty grim moments going down to uh, Lissabotten where there's this really famous hairpin climb coming out of it's basically a uh, it's basically the end of a fjord um, mm-hmm. and so we had to go down and then back up again uh, and I remember getting to the bottom totally um, totally soaked and having to sit inside for half an hour to uh, to warm up before going back uh, going back out again and um, but we had yeah this four or five days of on and off rain the temperatures were less well five to ten degrees yeah. usually and the tough part about the terrain in Norway I found was that there wasn't as many um steep alpine type climbs there was a lot of these long drags where you'd be going uphill for 50 odd kilometers uh, two or three percent and then you reach this plateau about a thousand meters which isn't isn't particularly high for more southern regions but in norway there was still still snow lying around that uh, around those around that sort of altitude in july and you'd stay at these plateaus for 25 odd kilometers um and if you've got the wind going the wrong way it's a real drag it's cold up that i had near near freezing conditions a couple of times and I got well I wouldn't say it was proper snow there was sleet at one point and it seemed like it seemed like every time I had got to uh, got to the end of these plateaus sort of battening through headwind and drizzling rain I would see I'd see the descent coming up but there'll be a huge cloud over the top and uh, I remember a couple of distinct times um, starting the descent and it it was raining the other side so it just made the descent miserable as well mm-hmm. um, so it was yeah it wasn't wasn't really what you may expect from a July uh, July cycling experience um, so it was it was yeah it was a real a real challenge in that way there was there wasn't many times where I sort of had that easy easy pedaling experience it felt like every every kilometer was uh, was well earned on that on that one okay okay but actually I have always I've always had the the fantasy of going riding Norway how would you consider that you have ridden in I don't know I think around all Europe at the moment more or less is Norway so special in terms of riding? It's, uh, I don't know, I can see all the time, for example, the thing that fascinated me the most is that you are going there in July and still you are going up to these hairpins, mountains or whatever, and you can really still there find 
cold weather, snow, but still when the sun is out, landscape is amazing, this vegetation there is pretty special and whatever. Would you consider a play would you consider Norway a special place where to ride? Or would you say, Stefano, come on, you can go and ride in uh, in the south of Italy, it's more or less the same remote thing, but I don't know, also weather-wise or um, landscape-wise can be better. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think lands well, landscape-wise is beautiful. It's um, some of the and some of the roads as well is they're comparable to some of the best roads you find you'd find elsewhere in in Europe in the parts in the parts which I've ridden, and yeah, in that way, I think it's really undiscovered as a as a cycling destination but then so the, yeah so so the sort of the physical geography that is is uh yeah it's, it's really up there but there's not quite the same uh the same infrastructure around that it's um there are especially in that in that sort of southern part there are a lot of uh, decent sized towns and uh you Although some sections were quite isolated, you never felt like you were more than I don't know, 50, 80 kilometers away from a, at least a half decent sized town. Um, but the, the well, the roads were really quiet. That was that was that was a really good side of it. And um, the well, the only parts um, there were some more touristy parts around Trollstig and where there was there was quite a lot of big coaches and. Um, that was that was the only part where where you really notice the traffic, but then a lot of the other parts. Even though even though there's there's not many there's not many roads in Norway. These these the mountain passes you go over they they're the only way to get between towns in some places. Um, but even still, there's yeah very very little traffic on the roads. So it's in that way if if you're yeah if, if you're if you're more of an adventurous inclination then it's definitely uh yeah it's it's, it's definitely a destination which has has roads comparable yeah with uh with some of the more well-known well-known places but with all the races that are around sam why did you choose this year before the trans pyrenees to go to make the backpacking around norway race um I think well, Norway was my was the first was the first one I had in mind. Um, oh. Partly for the destination itself, somewhere. I mean, the images you see of Norway, they look amazing, and it it was, and but and even better in in real life. And I I it's it's was well, I'd never been to Scandinavia before, so oh. it'd be culturally it'd be an, a uh, new a new experience as well and the the challenge of the route itself was something which really appealed to me because i'd i hadn't ridden a an event of that distance before um i'd done the uh, the transatlantic way in 2017 which was about two and a half thousand kilometers and then done a couple of shorter ones afterwards so i thought this was a it was 3400 kilometers so i thought this was a a good distance to step up without extending too much further um so i thought so i was interested by yeah uh by by that side of it too um and it it happened well i i, I sort of looked at 
looked at trying to schedule the events in the year to not have to have a decent amount of time between them so to recover and then train again for the for the next one and so it it seemed to seem to line up nicely doing this one at the start of July and then the, the Transpyrenees which was uh, start of October so it gave me that sort of having after having the rest of July to sort of take it easy for a while and then from August onwards to focus on the on the Transpyrenees yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense you were mentioning before a couple of things that let me think about the next thing that I want to ask you you were mentioning um, that you have done already some other races around uh, and so a bit shorter maybe but still interesting as interesting or more interesting that yeah that's interesting everything is interesting of the Norway bikepacking race and you were mentioning as well that Norway has a lot of climbs and peaks that were pretty similar to the European Alpine um, climbs that you have done and I want to step back then of one year and then talking about the three the three peaks bike race that you won in 2018 right yeah tell me more about that race um that was uh it was a similar distance to transparent ease around yeah around 1600 kilometers um and there was three mandatory uh three mandatory peaks that um uh, that defines the route. So the first one's the Passau Jao in Italy. I hate <laughs> that pass, man. I can tell you, Sam, I hate it. Also because I've done it most of the time on the Maratona, the Maratona delle Dolomiti. And it comes after the old Sella Ronda, and then you are doing Falsarego, I think, twice. And then it's something like the fifth or the sixth climb after 100 kilometers. And then you have this monster of 10, 12 kilometers, 10% constant gradient. It yeah. killed me, 10, 12. It was it was tough, but I think I think the well the one after that, which was uh, it wasn't mandatory, but I don't think I'd choose to do it again. Was the uh, which I found, which I think I found, I think maybe the hill itself wasn't the the toughest I've done, but I think the whole circumstances around it was the toughest I found. The hill was the Paso uh, the Federa, the, see, uh, see, see, yes, just right, uh, just next to that, because there's a section that which is it's like three kilometers at, I think it's around 15% where it's, it's a straight road. So it's just one of the soul destroying ones where there's no, there's no relief coming up. There's no hairpins to take, to occupy your mind or, or relieve the gradient. And I had that, that had come at the start of the race. So I think, um, it started at 4 PM on a Saturday afternoon. So I'd ridden through the first night, um, got to pass out jail at, um, in the early afternoon of the next day and then it was so this was late afternoon for riding for uh, 24 hours plus I, I hit the Federa and it was yeah that was that was a real that was a real tough one to go over um, and then the next next mandatory one was the Furka Pass um, and the last one was uh, the Galibia um, and then it finished in finished in Nice, so it was it was self rooted between those three, and it was um, well I think they changed the time of year, which is um, which is being which is uh, for the for the next couple of years, which is being placed. But um, for this first year, it was uh, it was right at the start of June, so these passes had just opened a couple of weeks beforehand. I think it was it was a bit touch and go for a while whether 
I mean, both the Ferg Pass and the uh, the Calibio are actually going to be open. Um, so there was still quite a lot of snow banks when we got to got to the top of those. I can tell you that the Ferg Pass this year, beginning of June, was closed. Yeah. <laughs> still, because of snow. Just to tell you, because I could not go there at the beginning of June, I had to go in August and see if there was snow. Yeah. So so the actual the temperatures weren't too bad, but it's I think it gives it's an added element of uh, sort of not not danger, but um, uh, sort of trepidation when you're when you're at the uh, when when you're going up these and there's, there's still there's still snow banks there and you sort of yeah you feel very isolated when you're at the top of these, especially especially going up the the Gilibia. Um, I had I think coming out of Valois, um, there was a couple of people descending towards me with uh, what looked like uh, full winter gear, sort of balaclavas pulled over their faces. There wasn't a piece of skin showing, so I was sort of wondering what was what was actually going to be up there. What um, I, I sort of. Uh, uh, um, yeah, a bit, in, bit intimidated by that by that prospect. It was, it, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't pleasant. The um, the mist had come in. It was, it was drizzling a bit, um, and I'm sure I saw some people driving up in cars and uh, and turning around and coming back down because they didn't they didn't fancy going to the top, um, and yeah, it's it's a tough enough climb as it is. Um, and I was putting on layers as I was going up, but then you're still you're still sweating inside a bit as well. So once you reach the top, you've got you've got on all your layers already, and then you start to descend, and you're still you're uh, you you're getting cold very quickly because you're you're wet within your clothes. Um, so I made well I made it halfway down to the uh, to the colder water and just had to um, had to go into that. There was a there was a restaurant in there that was that was still open, um, and so I had to had to go in there and had to, yeah had a crepe and a hot chocolate to warm up before doing the rest of the, the descent because I think I would have, would have frozen if I'd done the, that done the whole of that in one go. That's crazy. That's super crazy. No, but yeah, these are really you mentioned really three of the most beautiful probably climbs that you can find around Europe, really from east to west. Um, yeah, and I think it was it was a great route to similar to. How the Trans Pyrenees was it kept you kept you within the mountain range so within those well to make it between those between those peaks you had to you had to do other passes as well but I think that one um, there was there was a lot more there was a lot more valley roads you could um, uh, because it, because so much of it was self rooted you could stick on a valley road for hundred kilometers apart so it wasn't it wasn't as relentless as the as the Trans Pyrenees, um, but it was yeah it was st- it was still tough there was still some still some big hills to get over. Yeah, because I can completely feel that the Trans Pyrenees was really one climb after the other. You mentioned um, the Red Pyrenees parkour, so the last stretch really. And this was really hell. All the passes that you are listening and people are doing, the pro are doing in the Tour de France, were there, they were compact in a couple of under two, 300 kilometers and all the climbs were there. So you think, okay, I'm done. I'm just 300 kilometers from the end. But actually, yeah. no, there is everything one after the other. Yeah, and um, I think it, in a way it's... Um, 
me personally, I would, I'd probably rather do that than do 500 kilometers on the flat because you've got a target each 50 kilometers or less to, you get to the top of one hill, you get down the other side and then you've got the next one, next one coming up. So you're, you've constantly got that next, got that next target coming up. Um, and I was sort of, I was sort of ticking them off as I went along. There was, there was something like 10 or 11 peaks over a thousand meters and, um, I mean, the tourmalade was halfway through, so I was sort of counting down the ones to get to the tourmalade, and then, and then I was sort of on the on the home, well, not quite on the home stretch, but um, but I'd done, I'd sort of usually sort of mental mental tricks to uh, sort of uh, sort of tell yourself that you're making progress and uh, and make it uh, yeah to. Uh, to break down the ride, so because if you're doing 500k in a flat, there's nothing. It's there's nothing. There's nothing to break it up. There's no. Um, the goal seems so far away. Whereas, even though the hills themselves are tough, you've got a descent coming up on the other side. Um, even if it's often the Pyrenees, it's uh, it's fought with sheep on the road and horses running about. It's. Uh, I quite I quite enjoy the aspect of it as well, and and I find it's although it's tough on some parts of the body, it helps constantly constantly moving in and out of the saddle and having a different position. I think um, it helps with other issues which which can, which uh, which can come up from riding this sort of distances. Yeah, but I completely with you when you're saying that. At the end of the day, if you have maybe a longer route going around the climb or just going up and down the climb and find the other pass and then the other one again, I would go for passes for a couple of reasons. Why? Because even after really long rides, and I can understand that actually these kind of races are really are really tough for your body and from your mental health and for everything like this. But on the other side, going on the flat probably is a bit more painful because you're really only there, sitting there, watching all the time. They are monotonous. They are always the same thing. While going up to the climb, you will always find in the next switch back or even just in the next pass that you are going through, you're just finding another point of view, another, another thing that tricks your mind. So, I don't know. You have always the rule that if you have a road that goes on the left and goes, it goes flat and then one on the right that goes up, you have always to follow the positive gradient. Yeah. It's a bit more yeah, interesting, no? And the the scene the scenery is always better higher up yeah, as well. Exactly. You can go you can watch around, the scenery is more is amazing, landscape is super cool. Also life that you're finding around you you were mentioning sheep are around, up there or cows. Up there they're there pretty quiet, really happy. You know, it's a different thing. On the flat you usually find a lot of cars. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was thinking that the last that last night I did um I was I was going up the tourmalade as it was going as it was getting dark and I don't think I saw another car on the road till the next morning and there was um, that was something which um, maybe I hadn't anticipated as much in the area of the Pyrenees probably especially at this time of year as well because between seasons it's ski season hasn't started yet and and summer holidays are over um, especially going through some of these ski resort towns on some of these passes they just felt like ghost towns even uh, once it got past eight o'clock there was just there was no sign of life anyway it was it, it was yeah it was um yeah it was it was quite interesting um 
and that were, I mean, looking at these places on the map, you see these reasonable sized towns, but I maybe hadn't appreciated as much that it would, that it would feel so quiet and there, and there wouldn't, yeah, there wouldn't be as much activity, especially, especially at night around these places. And, um, and I, well, I know it's, it's in France. It's always it's always difficult, especially on Sunday afternoons and evenings, to find places which are going to be open. But yeah, you know, riding through a town at nine o'clock and all the lights are off was uh, yeah, it felt like it could have been two in the morning, not not nine at night. That's the beauty of living in the mountains, though, right? Mm. You know that you are living just a super quiet life and you are enjoying instead of enjoying nightlife and blah blah blah, you are enjoying the mornings and the nature. I'm trying to repeat this thing to myself when I moved to Switzerland and I can say that I enjoyed so much moving from a metropoly and moving actually to a city that's still the biggest in, uh, in Switzerland, but still a small city. That's the thing that I really enjoy, just being around and just instead of being entertained by the things that the city can give you, just being entertained by the nature. It's something that gives you power, uh, something like it's, it's giving you a lot of strength. It's really recharge your batteries every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think where I live as well gives me the opportunities. Where I live in live in Sheffield, and it's uh, uh, yeah, in the north north of England, and it's it's a uh, well, it's a great city in itself, but it's so easy to get out of this, out of the city as well. Um, even this morning, I went out on my mountain bike up um, and get straight into the Peak District and get straight onto trails there. And it's 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 well, during the morning it's silent. It's quite. Uh, it attracts quite a lot of visitors during the day, but at at times it can, yeah, it can be great just looking out, looking out over the city, and uh, yeah, being able to being able to get out to get out to these places so easily is a real uh, it's a real benefit to have. So you were talking that this morning you went out with your mountain bike and doing some climbs. What are you training for? Which one are your plans for the future? <laughs> well, it's not not quite training yet. I've, it's only been two and a half weeks since Transpyrenees finished, so okay. yeah, I'm giving myself. I haven't quite decided when I'll start doing any sort of structured training yet, but um, I think I think after doing something like that, um, you've, I think not having a focus for a while is is a real. Uh, it's a real nice mental break to have because. Uh, uh, I've sort of had throughout this year. There's always been something coming up. Yeah. Yeah, from pretty much the start of the year, I've had something on the horizon. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 nice to nice to have that break. Um, but then on the other side, I'll know that soon enough, I want I want the next thing to aim for. I want to have have something to. I I'm very self motivated anyway, but having that having something having a real target is um, is something which I always always like to have in mind. So you're trying to tell me that you don't know what you're going to do next? Um, I've got some ideas. There's there's so many new events and races coming up that um, that in the well the full details of that have not been have been released for a lot of them. So I think I'm going to I would like to have a good plan before Christmas um, and then yeah start planning from then. Yeah, great. Yeah, I can completely understand. Well, Sam, I would say that was an amazing, great talk. Thanks a lot for that. I can really visualize all your times, that the great times that you had in the, in the Pyrenees for this race. And 
I don't know, it's a place that always I always liked to go and ride there and it seems like also your experience was great today. Yeah, thanks, thank you, Stefano. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, and uh, yeah, for sure we are gonna talk again once that your plans for twenty twenty are gonna be a bit more set up and whatever, so everybody can know where you are gonna ride and can follow you for that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Ciao, ciao, Sam. Bye. Thanks, Sam, for the amazing chat. It was really, really great. And thanks for the lot of passion. I think I recorded this interview in October. Uh, but now is everything ready. I actually edited uh, this episode on my fly back to Zurich. And I hope you enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, just go on iTunes and review, subscribe, do whatever you want. But thanks for the support. It's pretty, pretty important for me, uh, sorry, for me to get everybody out there really into the podcast but the podcast thing and into the broom wagon ah, another cool thing by the way i just received my uh, brand new broom wagon kit that is just in a limited edition for me and some friends and uh, i need to test it super soon so if you want to have a look to that go on calamaro cc on instagram and you will see something else out there and probably it's gonna be all the season winter season so i will test this kit together with my amazing open up and thanks a lot open and andy andy kessler for the support for this podcast this year a lot of adventure together that said i would say that we are gonna talk again next week i'm preparing some new episodes i'm running late in terms of interview but i'm gonna catch up super easy and i will try actually not to do any stop in terms of Christmas, pause or whatever. I will try to continue to produce this podcast also during Christmas period. I will see, I will see. We'll probably just give me one week on the 25th because I'm gonna be sitting on the table with all my family eating as crazy. By the way, I in the last 16 months, I actually earned 16, no, 16 is too much, but 10 kilos. It's time to catch up with the perfect weight now. Apart from that, people, I will talk to you next week. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't enjoy, give me your feedback. Bye.